Well, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 22 again. And uh, if you remember last week, we began looking at the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, as Jesus gathers with his disciples and uh, takes this meal with them. And if you remember last week, if you were here, uh, I seemed, it seemed like I was making a lot of promises about what we were going to cover this week. Um, so I, I don't want to spend a lot of time introducing it again, want to dive into it. Um, but I do just want to say a couple quick things just by way of introduction and reminder. Uh, I want us to remember, first of all, just the importance of this, this meal, this, this Lord's Supper. I think it has been downplayed significantly so within evangelicalism in general. We talked a little about that last week, and uh, many of us, not all of us, some, some of you might have a very different experience, but many of us were reared in this, in this kind of a setting, this sort of uh, where, where the Lord's Supper we maybe knew was important, but we perhaps didn't really know why, or we couldn't even exactly say what is going on when we gather uh, and take this together. And last week, as we were speaking of the importance of it, we noted that Jesus himself viewed this as a very important and necessary thing as well. Uh, we looked at how he arranged this meal to have with his disciples. He spoke of his great desire to have this with them, to share this with them. He did this kind of secretly, most likely, so that Judas, who was looking for an opportune time apart from the crowds, would not be able to have time to, to, to bring in the Pharisees and the guards to arrest Jesus. Uh, he wanted to make sure that he had this meal with them before he would be arrested and killed. This was a necessary thing. He wanted to have this meal and institute this for his followers. We also noted last time, uh, and really the last couple of weeks, the, the Old Testament roots of this supper being the Passover, that this meal, this Lord's Supper, is a fulfillment of what the Passover was pointing ahead to. And again, we think of, of Paul in 1 Corinthians referring to Jesus as our Passover lamb. Uh, we also saw that this meal is a meal of thanksgiving, uh, that we, uh, as we come, we come in gratitude, we give thanks, and we come in a, in a posture of worship. That's the correct posture for us to come uh, take this in, one of worship and thanksgiving. We also noted last week that there's a forward look to this, that there's an eschatological end times focus to this supper. We're reminded that Jesus is coming again. He will yet come back. And at that time, those of us who believe in him, we will feast with him in his consummated kingdom. And this meal is a reminder of that. So we look back and we can see the Old Testament roots of this. In the Passover, we look back on the, the death and, and resurrection of Jesus, but we also look forward. We proclaim this death until he comes, and we look ahead to that day when we will feast with him in his consummated kingdom. And so I invite you to turn with me again to Luke 22, and we're going to read verses 14 to 23. And we're mainly going to focus on verses 19 to 23, but we'll read starting in verse 14. So let's get that together. Luke writes, and when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And gave it to them, saying, 
This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who is going to do this. So as we continue working through this, let's first look at the Lord's Supper as communion. The Lord's Supper as communion. We often use this word to refer to the Lord's Supper, the word communion. And, and by the way, the title of the Lord's Supper comes to us from Paul. He refers to it as the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, but we also often know it as communion. And of course, the idea behind that word is the, it, it means fellowship, uh, an intimate fellowship. So that as we take part in this meal, we are communing in some way with the Lord. So our own church's doctrinal statement has this sentence. It says, we also teach that whereas the elements of communion are only representative of the flesh and blood of Christ, participation in the Lord's Supper is nevertheless an actual communion with the risen Christ, who indwells every believer and so is present, fellowshipping with his people. So it's an actual communion, it says there. So Christ, we know, indwells every believer by his Spirit, uh, this means that we are always, as his people, if we're believing in him, we always have fellowship with God. Uh, this is really, this is what a Christian is, one who has fellowship with God. Uh, that is not something that is on again and off again. It's coming and going. It's true at all times for someone who is indwelled by Christ. But there would seem to be a particularly special communion that takes place when we gather with and have the Lord's Supper, a special Fellowship, something that is beyond the everyday experience of fellowship, or we might say an, an enhancement of that fellowship that takes place when we gather for communion. And so the question then is, uh, what is that fellowship? What does this look like? What does it mean that this meal is communion with Christ? In what way is he present and fellowshipping with us at this table? And the issue comes down, at least in part, to what Jesus says in verse 19, when he says, this is my body. He says, this is my body. So what way is this his body? What does he mean by this? Well, there's a number of views um, in, in answering what Jesus means by this statement, that this is my body. Of course, the Roman Catholic view takes this very literally. That this literally is his body. They argue that the, 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 the bread and the wine are actually changed to really become the physical body of Christ. That the substance of it actually changes. So that while uh, it looks still and smells and tastes like bread and wine, it is nevertheless actually now physically the body and the blood of Christ. This view... You've heard this word, it's called transubstantiation. It's a big word, uh, but it, if you just think trans, change, and substantiation, substance, they, they believe that, it, it, that the substance of this, these elements change to really be the body and blood of Christ. And so there's a number of problems with that. 
Um, Jesus does have a physical body, uh, but his physical body is not omnipresent. Um, when he was here on the days of his, you know, when he was on the earth, he was not everywhere at once. Uh, and now we're told that Jesus in his human nature is with the Father. He will one day return from the Father. Um, he is omnipresent, but through his, his, his divine nature, it's part of the mystery of Christ having two natures. Um, but his body is not everywhere at once, and it can't be everywhere that somebody is taking communion. We're taking it all over the world today on, on the Lord's Supper, lots of churches, different places. It's not, his body is not actually present in every one of those places. So there's logical problems with that. But also, I think even just within this, these, this chapter, we can see that this, this is not what Jesus means when he says this is my body. That he's not saying is literally his body. So, for example, in verse 20, he says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. So, we know that it, you know, the, the cup is not actually, literally, the new covenant. Right? That wouldn't even make sense. Uh, the, the cup... You know, he's using this as representative. The cup and what is inside of it, namely the wine that was inside of it, that is representative of the new covenant. Clearly, that's what Jesus is getting at here. You know, so, so the, the, the bread is no more literally the body of Christ than the cup is literally uh, the new covenant. So it's, it's representative. It's symbolic. And so at the time of the Reformation, the Protestant reformers rightly rejected this view um, but Luther, interestingly, he held on to a variation of this, of this idea that Christ's physical body was really present in the Lord's Supper. He argued that it was still somehow present in, with, and under the elements that we take. So it's kind of a confusing uh, position, a confusing statement. Um, but it's kind of like an analogy to that would be like water in a sponge. Uh, the, the two elements, the water and the sponge, they remain distinct. They're not the same, but they're entwined together. That where you have the sponge, you would have the water. Where the water is there, you would have the sponge as well. And so somehow, uh, Jesus is present in his human nature in some mysterious way as we take these, these elements. That's, so that's the Lutheran view. Uh, the Reformed view, distinct from the Lutheran view had some very variations within it, but argued that the elements are representative of Christ's body and his blood, and that Christ's presence with his people in the Lord's Supper was not physical, but it was a spiritual presence. That he's spiritually with us in a unique way when we do this, but it's, it's not that he's physically here. The, these elements just represent him. So many today would, I think... Uh, downplay this concept that Jesus, you know, is spiritually present in some uh, unique way during communion, um, just to get rid of that idea and just maintain that this is just strictly a memorial uh, in which uh, we gather to remember, so that you know we are edified as we remember, uh, as we re remember Jesus' body and His blood. But we can basically just do away with any sort of confusing notion of, of Jesus being with us in some spiritual way. And, I, and when we take that view, and I, and I think that's a very common view today, and, and many of us might hold that view or, or have sort of uh, received that view growing up perhaps, 
Um, but when we have that view, the supper then becomes mainly, the Lord's Supper becomes mainly something that we do. So we confess our sin. We come and we remember. It is an act that we perform. Christ's presence is not necessarily any more special in that moment, except that maybe we might become more aware of him and his presence. But Christ and the Holy Spirit are not necessarily active in any special manner in that moment. But really, it's just something that we do. And so it becomes more of a one-way act. Right? We come, we give thanks, we do an act of worship, and then Christ just receives that. It's really just a one-way thing. I think that's very common. So an important text in this discussion of, of, of communion and what it means that we are communing with the Lord uh, is 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16. And there Paul says this. He says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So that word participation there is the word for fellowship, or as the King James says, communion. That as we take part in this supper, what Paul's getting at here is that it's a real communion. It's an actual fellowship with our Lord. So we are fellowshipping with Him in or because of His body and His blood. And it is an actual fellowship. So that we ought to think more of it, think of it more as a, a two-way street, if you will. That He is there communing with us, even as we are there worshiping Him and communing with Him and thanking Him that He is here fellowshipping with us as well. And so I think it's I think it's clear that Paul sees that. When Jesus says, this is my body, uh, while it's not literally his body, his body is not literally here with us, his physical body, it does imply that Christ is present with us in a special way as we take the Lord's Supper. I think that's what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, when he speaks of it being a fellowship, that as we are taking this, we are communing with Christ. And so, if 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 that, if all of that is maybe confusing to you or, or, or new to you, then I just hold on to this. What, what I'm getting at here is that when Jesus says, this is my body, and Paul tells us we really have fellowship with Christ as we do this, then we should understand that there is an actual communion between us and Christ in that moment who is spiritually present with us in a special way. Now, that might... Maybe sounds nice. Maybe it sounds nice. I hope it sounds nice. Uh, but the question still arises, how does this work? Uh, what does that mean that he communes with us? How, how, what's going on here? Well, here's how I think we should understand communion to work. This idea of communing with Christ. That the Lord's Supper functions as a means of grace by which the Lord Jesus, through his Spirit, strengthens us spiritually as he confirms to us the truths of the Lord's Supper. So the Lord's Supper functions as a means of grace by which the Lord Jesus, through his Spirit, strengthens us spiritually as he confirms the truths of the Lord's Supper to our souls. And so the Supper is here so that the Lord Jesus himself might feed us and strengthen us spiritually as we take these elements together and as we reflect on their meaning. So I, I, I'm calling it a, a means of grace. I use that phrase. We've used that 
phrase a number of times in this church. I, I doubt it's new to you, um, but it might be. And uh, even if you've heard the phrase, it might be unclear what that means. Um, but I have in mind, as I, as I call the Lord's Supper a means of grace, this definition, which I, I'm taking from a, a guy named Richard Barcelos. He's a Reformed Baptist pastor and author. He's got a book on the Lord's Supper, and he, he says this. He defines the means of grace this way. He says, the means of grace are the delivery systems God has instituted to bring grace. That is, spiritual power, spiritual change, spiritual help, spiritual fortitude, spiritual blessings to needy souls on the earth. So that the means of grace are the delivery systems that God has instituted to bring grace, to give grace to us. So for example, let me give you an example of this um, that I, I suspect we would all agree on quite readily. But the scriptures, the word of God, we'd argue that these are, that the word of God is a means of grace to us. So it is a means by which God brings grace. So through the scriptures, and particularly through the gospel that it contains, God gives the grace of salvation. By hearing and understanding the truth of the gospel from God's word, one receives the grace of salvation as they believe it. And then for the one who believes, God uses the scriptures as a means of his grace to bring refreshment to his children, to bring strength to his children, to uh, to encourage us along the way, to keep us in the faith. He uses his scriptures to do this. So it becomes, a, it is a means or a delivery system for God's grace. If we need help, where do we turn? We turn to the scriptures. Why? Because in it, God gives strength to us. He gives grace. And so similarly, the Lord's Supper is a way in which God provides his people with grace. Grace to strengthen us, grace to encourage us, to uphold us in the truths of the gospel. Now, that grace does not come to a person automatically. It does not come to a person apart from faith. So this is a key distinction between how Roman Catholics would view something like the sacraments, how they would view the Lord's Supper, and, and what I'm arguing for here. Uh, Catholics believe that simply by taking the elements and digesting the bread, we automatically receive grace. Whether or not you understand anything that's going on, whether even if the last Mass is in Latin and you have no idea what's being said, they would say simply by taking it, you automatically receive grace from God. Uh, and they would view that as all the sacraments in that way. But that is not at all what I mean when I say this. That you can just take this, you can just show up and pop it in your mouth, regardless of understanding, regardless of faith, and just automatically receive grace. That's not how this works. That's not how God's means of grace work. The grace that we receive at communion, like with the Word of God, comes to us through faith. And so again, you can't just show up and scarf down some elements and just automatically say, I've received grace in this moment. No, we are strengthened by grace through believing, through faith, by believing the truths behind the Lord's Supper. Grace comes to us through faith. Just like, I mean, it's similar to the scriptures. It's not just automatic. Uh, we receive that grace as we believe what we find in the Word. So as we come to the Supper, we receive grace as we believe in the truths that are represented in the elements here. 
Furthermore, as we consider the Lord's Supper, the meaning of it comes to us from Scripture. And the truths that are confirmed to us as we take the Lord's Supper, those truths are made clear to us in Scripture. And so the Lord's Supper cannot be disconnected from the Word of God in any way. Again, we don't, you know, we, we don't just give it to people and just hand it out so that they would receive grace regardless of understanding. That's not what we're talking about. We receive grace as we receive the truth by faith, and God nourishes and encourages us by faith as we take this. So then I would say as we take the Lord's Supper, we should not view it merely as something that we do where we have to come and confess all of our sin, where we have to get ourselves into a certain condition so that then we can perform this act of worship together. Confession is good and right. And we obviously, doing this is an act of worship. We do come giving thanks. We looked at that last week. But we should also understand that this is given for us. It is given for our good. If we believe in Christ, that it is a means by which Christ comes to strengthen and encourage us as we take it and as we reflect on the truths that it represents. We are here to receive from the Lord as well, to commune with him. We worship, but he also strengthens us as we do this and worship him. So it's a, that two-way Fellowship, communion. And Christ does this by confirming to us the truths about the gospel that we read in the scriptures. So again, it's similar to what we do when we come and we gather on a Sunday and we worship. We come and we come to worship. And so we confess sin and we come to, to, to worship the Lord. But we also come to receive from him, do we not? We come to receive strength as we open up his word. We realize that he gives grace through His Word, and so we come in hopes of receiving that and desiring to be strengthened and encouraged on our way. And, and, and the Lord's Supper is another way in which He does this. So we have the Lord's Supper as communion. Secondly, we have the Lord's Supper as a memorial ordinance of Christ's substitutionary death. It is a memorial of Christ's death. And this is probably the aspect of the Lord's Supper that is easiest to grasp, maybe we're most comfortable with or most familiar with. But look at verse 19 again. It says, and he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so the, the two elements of the Lord's supper, the bread and the cup, they represent Christ's body being broken and his blood being shed. And in verse 19, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. So as we gather, we are to take these elements in remembrance as a memorial of Christ's death on the cross. Now, if you remember back to Exodus chapter 12, when the Passover was first given to the people of Israel, when God instituted it, he said there in verse 14 of Exodus 12, he said, this day shall be for you a memorial day. So they were to take this yearly and they were to do so as a memorial. The precursor to the Lord's Supper, the Passover, was likewise a day of remembrance. 
Now, the purpose of remembering, the purpose of such a memorial is not simply to call to mind certain facts. In the Old Testament, forgetting is often tied to apostasy. Forgetting is tied to disobedience, to abandoning the Lord. So, for example, in Isaiah 17.10, it says, For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. This comes as he's condemning the people for their disobedience. You've forgotten God. You've not remembered the rock of refuge. Similar statements are found in Jeremiah and Ezekiel as well. It's a common way of putting it as forgetfulness. And again, the problem was not simply that they could not rehearse to you some of the facts about the the Exodus, although it's possible they'd forgotten that too. But behind this call to remembrance is a call to cling to and to hold fast to the truths that we're to remember and to do so by faith and to do so tenaciously, continually, to believe these truths. This is the purpose of remembering. Remember these things regularly so that you, you stay true to them. And the specific thing in the Lord's Supper, he says to remember, is Christ's vicarious death. That is his substitutionary death on behalf of others. And if you're believing in Christ, particularly what you're to remember is Christ's death that is for you. That is in your place. Throughout this passage, we see that Christ's death was sacrificial. That it's on behalf of his people. And Jesus is assuring his disciples here that it was for them. Of course, we saw this in the Passover connection, that clearly this is showing Christ's death is a sacrificial death, and it's on behalf of others. The Passover lamb was sacrificed in place of the firstborn of the family. Moreover, Jesus graphically broke the bread, signifying his death. And then he told his disciples that his body was given for you, he says. This for you language is the language of substitution. It's given on your behalf, in your stead, in your place. Likewise, in verse 20, this cup is poured out for you. The lamb was broken in the place of those who believe in him. His death is a substitutionary atonement for believers. And so as we come to communion... We're to remember this. We're to believe this truth. And in keeping with the previous point that this is a means of grace, I suggest that this supper is one of the means by which God is sustaining you in the truth of the gospel by reminding you of his goodness for you, that this is for you. When Jesus handed out these elements. He took the cup. He had them divided up amongst themselves. And then he gives the elements to to these disciples. He hands it to them. Because it's for them. His blood and his body is for them on their behalf. And it's the same for you, Christian. As you take the element, as you receive it, remember that this is ultimately Christ. He's giving it to you. He's communing communing with you. And this bread you take and this cup you drink is a symbol of his death on your behalf. And a confirmation to you that his death is in fact for you. Again, it's not just 
Well, I remember the truths about the gospel. He died, he rose again. That's true, but it's remembering furthermore that it is for you, for your sin. as a covering for your sin if you are trusting in him. And we should take strength and find courage in that. As we remember, despite all of our failings over the past week, past day, past hour, I don't know, even right now, that as we realize our sinfulness and our need for Christ, and as we are trusting in Him, as we take these elements, it's a reminder that His death is not just a death for sinners, but it's for you. And as weary sinners, how we need this encouragement regularly. The longer we go, you might think, well, it might get monotonous, the Lord's Supper. We do this regularly. But I think the longer you live your life, you, you begin to see from the time you were converted, the more years you've been given. I think the testimony from, from older people on their deathbeds who were wonderful godly saints, who are just have, declaring their only hope is Christ, they realize just how... Just how sinful they were. Because after all these years of walking with Christ, they've continued to fail routinely. They've seen that they have needed God's grace in such an incredible way all the way through their days. And so it's, it's true for us. We need this reminder regularly as we weary and as we wrestle with our own sin and come face to face with it daily. We need this reminder that Christ died for you. Thirdly, we have the Lord's Supper as a new covenant meal. The Lord's Supper as a new covenant meal. Jesus' death and his resurrection ushered in what the scriptures call the new covenant. And Jesus says this in verse 20. He says, the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The old covenant, then, is the Mosaic covenant. The covenant that God made with the nation of Israel on Mount Sinai. And we read earlier at the start of the service, Exodus 24, 1-11... And we saw there, if you remember, that uh, when it was inaugurated, Moses sacrificed these animals and then he took the blood and he threw it on the altar and he even threw it on the people as well. And he said, behold, the blood of the covenant. The first covenant was inaugurated with sacrifices and with blood for cleansing. And the new covenant, likewise, is inaugurated with sacrifice and with blood but this sacrifice, of course, is far, far superior to, to the sacrifice of the Old Covenant. It was not a repeated one. It was the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ, His own body, His own blood, which truly and actually cleanses all who believe in Him, actually purifying the conscience of the worshiper, of those who worship God through Christ Jesus. We also read from Hebrews 9 earlier, where it makes this same statement. The old was cleansed with blood, but far inferior to the new covenant cleansed by the blood of Christ, where we as worshipers are actually made clean, where Christ has actually secured our redemption. And so what the blood of bulls and goats pointed forward to under the old covenant, namely the forgiveness of sins, Christ Jesus has actually accomplished by sacrificing his own body. But also, if you remember, I don't know if you caught this, but at the end of Exodus 24 and verse 11, at the end of our reading, after Moses speaks of 
the blood of the covenant, there is a meal that takes place. Easy, easy to miss it. But we're told that he and the 70 elders with him, they go up. It says they beheld God and ate and drank. When the old covenant was formed, there was the blood of the covenant, and then there was this meal, this covenant meal, and now we have Christ saying that his blood is inaugurating a new covenant, and here he is now having this meal with his apostles. It's the blood of the new covenant. Now this new covenant was promised throughout the Old Testament scriptures in a lot of different places, but perhaps... Most clearly, one of the more well-known passages is Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. I want to read that through to verse 34. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So if you think to the old covenant, you think to the nation of Israel, you gained entrance into that covenant through circumcision, if you were a male. So so you're born into that covenant. Your parents are Israelites, you're born into it. And so they would apply the sign of that covenant to newborn male babies. They would be circumcised on the eighth day. Or if you were a Gentile, we see Gentiles in the Old Testament who are brought into the covenant. They're converted. They come in. uh, And if they were a male, they would be circumcised, whatever age they were. And so you're you're brought into it. It's a nation. And that covenant included those who were uh, physically part of the nation, but who did not walk by faith. They were still in the covenant. So you have this covenant, you have have those who were physically descendants of of Abraham, who were in the covenant, but but didn't believe in the Lord. They were still actually in the covenant. But then you also had those who were physically born from Abraham's line, and who actually did believe. So you had true believers who were in the covenant, and you had unbelievers in the covenant. uh, If they were all physical descendants of Abraham and part of the nation in that way. But a major feature of the new covenant that was promised, that Jeremiah declared, was that all who were in this new covenant would be those who truly do believe. Those who would have the law written on their heart. And therefore, that's why he says there that there would be no more need for someone to tell another, know the Lord, because everyone would know the Lord. Everyone who's in the covenant actually knows the Lord. They actually believe. And so the new covenant is not entered into by being physically born into it, like in the old covenant, but rather you enter the new covenant by being born again by the Spirit of God. And which I will just add, that's one reason we do not baptize babies. 
unbelievers, including babies, are not part of the new covenant. We enter the new covenant by faith, by being actually born again. And so that's why we, we do not apply the sign of the covenant baptism to babies. We baptize those who make, prophetic, uh, who make professions of faith, credible professions of faith. And so this... So Jesus is telling us here that he, his blood is bringing about this new covenant that has been promised. His blood is the blood that ushers in the new covenant with all of its wonderful promises. And so as we gather again around the Lord's Supper, around the table, we are reminded that we are in a covenantal relationship with God. And the promises of this covenant, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, God's keeping and sustaining presence within us by His Spirit and so on, these promises are all sure and certain because Jesus Christ has perfectly met all of God's requirements on behalf of all who believe in Him, all who trust in Him. Blood has been shed, Christ's blood, and so there is remission for those who are in this covenant. The, the shed blood of Jesus, no less, reminds us that these promises God has made are certain. He will keep His word. And we were reminded that, as Jeremiah 31, 31 said, that all who are in this covenant, God is our God. Not just in a generic sense in which He's everybody's God, but that He's God, our God in a saving sense. That He has forgiven our iniquity. And all of this is because of Christ. Hebrews 9, 12. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of, the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He secures it. He makes it certain. These promises of the new covenant, forgiveness of sins, God is in fact our loving Heavenly Father. We have an eternal inheritance these are made sure by Christ. Richard Barcellos writes, The blood of the covenant indicates entrance into covenantal relations with God. Thus, when we take the Lord's Supper, it is a covenantal renewal meal. It does not bring us into covenant with God. It reminds us that we are, we are in covenant with Him through Christ. And this enhances that covenantal bond. There is blood that has been spilled, that has brought about this new covenant, and it assures us with the gravest of promise that those in Christ will not be let go, but rather we belong to God. And so we look to the cup as a reminder and a seal of these truths. The covenants throughout the scriptures show us that God keeps His promises. He keeps his word. In the case of Israel, he kept his word to bless them, but he also did keep his promise to curse them in their disobedience. God is faithful when he makes a covenant. God keeps his promises. And this meal reminds us of this, that God is actually oath-bound, he says, to keep those who are in Christ. He is oath-bound to forgive 
your sins. It's a reminder of this. And so if you wonder, you sit there and wonder if this can be true of yourself, you look to the blood of Christ and you remember the covenant that he has struck with this blood that God has struck and you say, I'm relying on this promise and I'm taking hope in the promise that God has forgiven me, that he is my God, my loving Heavenly Father, that I can come to him. And this supper reminds us of these truths and strengthens us in this reality. Finally, and just briefly, the Lord's Supper, let's look at the Lord's Supper as sacred. This is a sacred thing. In many ways, this point, point that it's sacred just... I think logically flows from everything I've just said until now. But it might also seem like a strange point to make from verses 21 to 23. But let's read those verses again quickly and then we'll try to explain why, why I'm saying this. So he's just said this cup is the blood of the new covenant, the new covenant in my blood. And then he says, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who is going to do this. So this meal is a special occasion for the Lord and for his people, for his disciples to commune together, for the Lord's people to worship and give thanks, and for the Lord to confirm and strengthen his people in their faith. But there is a man at this first meal who does not belong. There is a blemish here. There is one who will not benefit from the blessings of the new covenant, for he is not in this new covenant. And he is, of course, the betrayer. He is Judas. And we remember, you remember, we, we looked at him and his betrayal back in verses 3 to 6. We saw where he agreed to betray Jesus for money. Now, Jesus knew here precisely what was going on. That's clear. He declares that he will go as it has been determined. Reminding us once again that his death was ordained and that this was a necessary thing. It's God's determined plan. And what a comfort this would be for those apostles upon his death. To remember, he did say this was a necessary thing. That this was a determined thing. And yet, clearly here, Judas is responsible for his actions. And Jesus pronounces this woe upon him because of that. It is a condemnatory statement, like a curse upon him. So Judas is acting according to his nature. He's doing what he desires to do. In God's infinite existence, a thing is determined, and yet a man is not coerced into evil against his will. Judas acts in a way that he is responsible for. He and all the other human agents responsible for Christ's death, for putting him on the cross. And again, we looked at that a couple of weeks ago as we looked at the enemies of Christ gathering and plotting against him and their own purposes and intentions in it. That in one sense they are fulfilling the Lord's plan, certainly, but they mean it for evil, and they did this out of evil desire. They're trying to destroy him. And so God holds them responsible. Clearly that is so for Judas. As one who did not believe in the, the Lord Jesus, Judas was out of place at this meal, ultimately, and Jesus points that out here. And while Judas' situation is unique, and tragically so, I think we should see in this a reminder of the importance of taking the supper in a worthy manner. 
It reminds me of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 when he says that whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I believe this warning primarily refers to the need first to be a Christian. To be worthy of this meal, to be worthy of it, does not mean that we are perfect or that we are presently having victory over every single sin that there is. That's not what it means. It means, first of all, that we come as believers, that we understand our sinfulness before God and that we justly stand under His condemnation, that we are then believing that our only hope of righteousness is the life, death, burial, and Resurrection of Christ, our only hope of forgiveness is Him. Our only hope of righteous, a righteous standing before God is by His grace coming to us through believing in Christ Jesus. And so we first must believe that. If we do not believe that, we are not believing the gospel. We are not worthy to take part in this. This is for His people. This is why these promises are for His people. This the whole thing is for Christians. And it does mean that we don't come then with a careless attitude about sin. We're to come with recognition of our need for the truths that these elements represent. That we come knowing that I need Christ and His gospel. I need His death for sinners because I am a sinner. We are to come in humility and we are to come in faith and we are not to come in flagrant unbelief and in rank hypocrisy. Judas was the quintessential unworthy participant in the Lord's Supper. And so let us, first as we come, deal honestly with the Lord. Have I been born again? Am I bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? Again, it doesn't mean we've conquered every sin, nor does it mean our repentance is always perfect, but it means we understand the gravity of our sin. We are bringing our sin to the light. We are confessing it. We are working at mortifying, killing, putting to death the indwelling sin that remains. It means we know that our only hope of forgiveness, our only hope of righteousness before God is Christ's life, His death, and His resurrection. That that is our only hope. If you believe that and know that, then this is for you. This is a sacred meal for Christ's sheep. And so as we gather, which we're going to do once again now, let us confess our sin. And let us lay hold of the truths that these elements point to. That we might be strengthened and refreshed in consideration of Christ. See before you the reminder of Christ's death on your behalf. For your sins. See before you the reminder that we will one day feast with the Lord in his kingdom. See before you all the promises of the new covenant made sure by the shedding of Christ's blood. That all your sins are forgiven. That eternal life is yours. All guaranteed by Christ's blood. And so let us come 
and enjoy communion with our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We give you praise. Father, we are sinful and deserve condemnation. And yet, you have sent forth your Son to make a way for us sinners to be saved. And Father, I pray that every person here would believe this, would, would acknowledge and confess their sin to you and not hide it and trust fully in Christ. And then, Lord, I pray that as we come, for every person here who is trusting you, and Father, we are weak. We know, we, we confess, we are so weak. I pray that we would be encouraged and strengthened in your grace, by your grace. That we would, by faith, through our faith, receive the truths that these elements point to. That Christ has died and shed his blood for us. That as we receive these elements, we would see them as coming from Christ's hand, as assurances to us and as encouragements to us. Father, I pray that this would just delight our hearts, that this would encourage us to throw off sinfulness all the more, that we would rejoice in the beauty of your grace and in the, the, the wonder of, your, of the forgiveness that you've, you've given us. So, Father, strengthen us and encourage us as we gather now and take this supper together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.